Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. So let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord God, we are fresh from the Feast of Pentecost, and we we pray, Lord, that that same Holy Spirit that enlivened the early church and the apostles would enliven us tonight as we dive into your word. We pray, Lord, that the words of sacred scripture would compel us to know you more deeply, to follow you more faithfully, to be challenged in the ways that we need to grow, and to be comforted in the ways that we are seeking solace, the ways that we need you, Lord. We pray tonight that we would receive whatever you have in store for us, that we would allow our hearts and minds to be open and attentive to your word, and any distractions, worries, or anxieties that are plaguing us or on our minds, we just ask, Lord, that you remove those from us. We lay them at your feet, as well as this next hour, that your will would be done. And so we pray that you would peel back the layers of this short passage this evening and help us to see the rich depth that awaits us. We pray for all those who could not be here tonight, all those who are still on their way, and asks your blessing upon each one of us in the ways that we most need it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. We are in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. It's always celebrated as the Sunday after Pentecost. And so tonight we are uh, going back a little bit into the sermon that Jesus gives at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John and his discourses to the disciples. We have a little segment here where he's talking about the spirit of truth and all that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal. Uh, so we're kind of still playing on yesterday's Feast of Pentecost, but you're going to see a lot of uh, kind of inferences to the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity in these uh, few short verses. So we're going to read this probably three times through because it's a shorter passage. First time through, um, just imagine yourself in this scene hearing these words. Okay, so again, so Jesus is in the upper room the night before he's, or the night he's going to be handed over before he's to be crucified, and he's giving a long discourse of teachings to his disciples, his final farewell speech, if you will, to them. Okay, and this is part of what he says to them. John 16, verse 12. I have much more to tell you. But you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and will declare to you the things that are coming. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. 
For this reason, I told you that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read this a second time and a third time, I invite you now to listen and see if any particular word or phrase stands out to you for any reason. This isn't to interpret the passage, to try and get like a deeper understanding necessarily of what's being said. It's really to open our minds and ears to see if God is speaking through this to us individually. So try and clear your mind of everything else but the words now as we read them. And if a particular word or phrase just sparks something in your mind, stands out to you, reminds you of something, uh, and begins to go off on a train of thought, just pay attention to what that is. Start reflecting on that. Why is this standing out? What is the Lord trying to say to me? What is he uh, compelling me to do? John 16, verse 12. I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and will declare to you the things that are coming. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. For this reason I told you, that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. And as you reflect on whatever stood out, I'm going to read this just one final time to confirm that as you continue to reflect. I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and will declare to you the things that are coming. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I told you that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a small but mighty gospel passage for this upcoming Sunday. Take a few moments to just reflect on what stood out to you. And when you feel so inclined, uh, share with those at your table. If you're sitting alone, I encourage you, if you'd like to join anyone else to please do so but if you're watching this on zoom feel free to share those things in the chat if you're watching this later on youtube put those in the comments but for those of us here uh, when you're ready share with those at your table what stood out to you and why or any questions that you have about this reading and we'll come back together in a large group in about 10 minutes all right so we bring you back to the larger group i'd love to hear what are some of your reflections your thoughts what stood out to you what questions do you have about this passage magdalena i have a question yes about the use of the word um so it says he will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you and so the question is why he used the word declare instead of give? 
Mm. Is there, word? there is, yeah, the, that word declare. Um, I think it's anagelin in Greek. It's, um, it's a word that's used in apocalyptic literature, like in Revelation um, or in some of the prophecies, you know, and, and it says also in here some prophetic language, he will declare to you things that are coming. And so that idea of it being declared, um, I, it's characterizing language used with the Holy Spirit about kind of revealing what is to come in a way that is, I don't know, similar to the characteristics of more apocalyptic literature. It's not, he's not just referencing the Holy Spirit's going to be given to you, almost like the Holy Spirit is also going to equip you in these things that are coming. Um, and so that's kind of the use of that word. When we interpret scripture, the church teaches that we interpret it in four different ways. And one of those ways is, um, it's called in the anagogical sense, meaning it's in the sense that um, has to do with eschatology, has to do with end times. What does this tell us about our destiny? It's like through the lens of hope, you know? So anytime you're reading scripture, you're reading it literally. What is it literally saying? What is this telling us about what we believe, our faith, the allegorical sense? What is this telling us about how to live, the moral sense? And then what is this telling about like who we are to become? And that's the anagogical sense. And that same word is used here for declare, the same root word. So it's kind of almost mirroring that language about our destiny, the apocalyptic visions of what will be, that the Holy Spirit will empower us, be a source of victory, a source of truth in all of those different areas. Um, and it's a very unique word. I think that might be the only place where that word is used in the whole Gospel of John. So, yeah, great question. Yeah, Katie. Um, Vicki on Zoom was saying, what stood out to me was the spirit of truth. He will guide you to all the truth. Um, and was Jesus referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit or to the truth from the Father? Um, referring to the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit reveals the truth, like kind of in union with the Father. Everything they do is in cooperation. Um, so it's kind of a both hand. But he's specifically talking about the Holy Spirit, because he starts talking about the Holy Spirit previous to this, um, when he says, um, it is better for you that I go, for if I do not go, the Holy Spirit will not, or the Advocate will not come to you. Talking about the Holy Spirit earlier in chapter 16, just a few verses prior to this. So, yeah. Thanks, Vicki. Bruce. Who is the you that's going to have this revealed to them? Just the disciples that were in the other room? Or forever followers of Christ? Are we still getting uh, revelation today that it end at some point in time, cut off for whatever reasons, and, and now we just live with what they taught us? Hmm. What's, our, what's our job now to interpret the Holy Spirit or talk to him or listen to him or be guided by him or what? Yes, so the answer is yes and no, because you used a very specific word, you used the word revelation. We've talked about this word before. Revelation in the sense of all that was revealed by God through Jesus and confirmed in the Holy Spirit, we believe that that will be called a public revelation of all the things that we believe as Catholics ended with the death of the last apostle. So anything that we dogmatically believe as Catholics has to be declared in some way or realm of authority that traces back to the teachings or the authority of those original 12 apostles. So for instance, God would, he's, he declared that he would not come, you know, let's say, you know, let's say the Blessed Mother appears right here, which would be super cool, Our Lady of St. Timothy. And she says, um, now it is a dogmatic teaching of the church that purgatory is purple or something. I don't know. I'm making this up. 
And everyone has to believe that. The church would never say that that is a legitimate thing that we now have to believe because we believe that public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. Um, so in one sense, it was meant for the apostles at that time when it comes to like authority and revelation and truth. However, it's also talking about declaring to you the things that are coming in this element of prophecy that the Holy Spirit enables. That's one of the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of prophecy, one of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And that still happens today. still happens in the Catholic Church and, and many of our uh, Protestant or non-denominational Christian brothers and their uh, brothers and sisters in their different communities, the Holy, those who are more tapped into the Holy Spirit, they see a lot of these powerful prophetic manifestations of the Holy Spirit speaking and being able to really kind of share truth and revelation. But that doesn't necessarily, it's not revelation in the public sense. We're like, okay, now we're, we're trying to figure out what we believe. We already know that. In the personal or private sense now, the Holy Spirit guides us in situational circumstances. So we might ask, Holy Spirit, what are you asking me to do in this moment? Or Holy Spirit, what is a word of knowledge you have for this person and what they're going through? Those things are still being revealed. But the revelation that was revealed in terms of what do we believe as Catholics, what is the authoritative teaching of the church, that all ended in the public revelation with the death of the last apostle, John. So is that, is that, does that include interpretations? Um, so not necessarily, because interpretation, like if we interpret scripture over time, we uncover new manuscripts that we didn't have access to before. Uh, we find them in different, you know, anthropological or archaeological digs. So we gain more like contextual knowledge about like, oh, this is dated earlier. Here's a copy of a, a book that is dated earlier than we thought it was originally written. So we learn different, you know, interpretive tools um, over time. But when it comes to the actual teachings of the church, like what do we believe as Catholics in like the, you know, formulaic central doctrines of the church? We believe those will not change and cannot change because they were given by Jesus directly to the apostles. So the, the sorry. That's okay. The, um, the Catechism of Catholic Church is not revelation. It is. It is. Yes, it is. It is. It all. All the teachings in the Catechism of the Catholic Church find their root in teachings that were given from Scripture or from. It, during the lifetime of the original 12 apostles. So we contextualize them and interpret them for different issues today, but we can point back all the way to a particular scripture or a particular writing in the, the life of the early church, an event in the, in the early church that carried with it the authority of the 12 apostles and saying, this is why we believe this, because 2,000 years ago, one of the 12 apostles or scripture says, etc. Does that make sense? And then over time, we've kind of learned how to articulate that based on different issues or questions that have arisen. So theology has adapted and evolved to new questions and new circumstances, but the central teachings that they evolved from do not change. Does that make more sense? Okay, cool. Great questions. Other things stand out? Other questions you have? I have a Yes. Yeah. The verse, uh, he will not speak on his own. Mm -hmm. I was wondering the first time I heard, why not? You know, why can't you just, you're, you're God, you're, you're the Trinity, why can't you be just as the Father and the Son? This is, that's my first thought. Mm -hmm. The second thought was, uh, he will speak only what he hears. Mm -hmm. So, why? And you hear from, from who? From the Father or from 
Jesus or from, from who? Yes. So why can't the Holy Spirit speak on his own? And why does the Holy Spirit speak only what he hears? Uh, from the Father. Yeah. And from the Son. And that's because it says this language in the Catechism that the mission of the Son is the same as the mission of the Spirit. That their mission is intimately tied. They share the same mission. So they're cooperators in that sense. And our understanding of the Trinity, that's our what we celebrate this Sunday, the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. Okay? And so this Sunday, we have a passage like this and readings that kind of show the interrelationship of the persons of the Trinity. Okay? Um, so it's important for us to talk about this because the Trinity is a very hard thing to understand. And any analogy that we use or example is going to in some way fall short of the mystery of who God really is. But we can we can do our best. <laughs> so in fact, when many priests, uh, when they go through their education, they all have to take a Trinitarian theology class, which is a, a class just on the theology of the Trinity, like how it developed in scripture, how it was understood over time, what different church people have, you know, said about it over the centuries. And uh, to pass that class in many seminaries, priests have to write a homily for Trinity Sunday and not commit heresy. That's like their final exam. <laughs> Because there are so many Trinitarian heresies, like ways you can talk about the Trinity that are wrong, okay? Um, and so we do not believe that we believe in three gods, okay? Father, Son, and Spirit separate. We do not believe that. That's the heresy of tritheism. We do not believe that. We also do not believe that God is like a transformer, that like he's got the Father and then like, now he's got the Son and now he's got the Spirit. No, we believe that all three persons coexist at all times eternally. Okay, that heresy is called modalism, that God takes on different modes at different times, okay? So what we believe as a trinity is that we believe in one God, one divine being, who manifests in three distinct persons. Okay? And the word for persons in the early church was this Greek word hypostases, which means ways of being. Ways of being. Hypostases or hypostatic also can mean nature. So different natures, even though God shared he's He's God. He has his own nature. Um, so this is, in essence, an example of this would be an example I've used before. I am one being, but I am a father, I am a son, and I am a spouse. And the Spirit is understood many times as the spouse of Mary, the spouse of the church, things like that. And so you may know me as, I don't know what you know me as, you probably know me best as father or spouse. You see me with my kids or you see me with my wife. Uh, and you know one side of me, one way that I am. But if you've never seen me around my parents as a son, then you're missing kind of a lens through which you can understand who I am. And yet you still know me. Okay, does that make sense? The difference between that analogy and with God is that my three ways of being and natures are all confined into one physical body. But God is not corporeal. He does not have a body. And his three natures are distinct from one another, and yet they are all God. And so that's a mystery that we will never fully be able to comprehend. But we can begin to understand it uh, by some of these different analogies. I think St. Augustine used the uh, analogy of that in one person, um, I can have, my, I, can, I can know, I can will, I can feel, I can be. These are all different natures that can exist in me simultaneously. And if they're properly ordered, then they can all be ordered in the right in the same direction. You know, I know something, so I want it. 
I feel that I want to do it. I'm going to be doing that thing. They've all ordered in the right direction, but they can all be different and distinct. I can know something, but then maybe not want to do it. I can know this is good for me, not want to do it. I can know that a donut is bad for me, but I'm going to eat it anyway. You know, these different natures can subsist inside of me. Um, so we have kind of different versions of that that we understand kind of in our own human nature, if that makes sense. So um, what question am I answering? What did I get? <laughs> Where did I get caught off on the Trinity? So I was asking, why, why, yes. why can't he speak on his own? Thank you, thank you. So why can't he speak on, you on his own? Because he wouldn't. He would not be able to. It would be outside of the nature of God to contradict himself because God is all good. He's all-knowing. He's, he's nothing but truth. And so there can be no division between the three of them. Just, can, just like I cannot divide myself between like, okay, I'm going to cut out the part of me that is father and put it over here. And I'm going to cut out the part of me that is a son. It, it, those natures that I have cannot be in disagreement with one another. Does that make sense? I guess you can't speak. Uh, I think I understand it, but it's, there's still a little, a little doubt here. So yes, yeah. yeah. It's the, the fact that the three persons of the Trinity are always perfectly cooperating and always perfectly ordered to the same mission. They cannot compete against one another, just like I cannot, I mean, I guess I technically could compete against myself, but like in, in unhelpful ways. But because God is perfect, he never would. You know, be outside of his nature to do something illogical or paradoxical like that. Because he's all good, he can only do what is good. Because he's true, he can only speak truth. And truth cannot contradict truth, no matter what anyone in today's culture might tell you. Okay, just because some, you know, we have these phrases like, what's true for you cannot, you know, doesn't have to be true for me. That's like, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's saying that it's absolutely true, that nothing is absolutely true. Like, it's a paradox, it doesn't make any sense. There is truth, there is concrete, real truth. And there are things that are true and things that are false. God is all true and therefore can only speak to what is true, can only share what is true. He cannot become a paradox in himself and share contradictory things. So, can the Holy Spirit initiate communication? Can yes. Now, in fact, it says in the Catechism that um, by virtue of the fact that any of us prays, it's because the Holy Spirit has initiated it within us. So the Holy Spirit is kind of that source of initiation where God is reaching out to us and implanting within us the desire to pray. And only because we have the desire to pray, or we only have the desire to pray because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. So God is always initiating, always. And the way the language of the catechism works, it seems as though he does that through the person of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I'm going to get Magdalena in the back and then I'll come to you. Yeah. So it's kind of like one in essence and spirit, but in three persons. Correct. Yes. One supreme divine God, three distinct persons. And then if you say anything more than that, you have to be very careful to not commit heresy. That's like how difficult it is. Um, you know, or you can say one plus one plus one equals one. The end. <laughs> That's kind of the Catholic math of the Trinity. So, yeah. Uh, Emily. So... If the Holy Spirit can't speak on his own, does that mean neither Christ nor God himself? Correct. Yeah. Okay, I see. I see What's it. Yeah, we can hear. Yeah, so uh, Emily asked, if the Holy Spirit cannot speak on his own, does that mean that Jesus or God the Father cannot speak on their own? And that's true. In fact, in uh, chapter 15, earlier than this, verse 15, uh, Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing. I call you friends because I have told you everything that I have heard from my father. 
So everything that Jesus declares is what the Father told him to declare. And he says something uh, similar to this again in the next chapter, in chapter 17, verse 8. He says, oh, it's hard for me to see these numbers. Um, because the words you gave to me, I have given to them, Jesus talking to God the Father. And they accepted them and truly understood that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. And he says right before that, now they know that everything you gave me is from you. So Jesus himself declares that everything that he has shared, everything that he has spoken, is simply what he has heard from the Father. That he has only done and said what the Father told him to do and say. Perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect relationship. There's no division or discord between the persons of the Trinity. Yeah, Bruce. I know that analogies only go so far, mm -hmm. but when I came up with today, God the Father is the hand, and in our age, the nitrate glove that goes over that hand and fits so tight that they're like one is Jesus. And the second nitrate glove that goes over that is the Holy Spirit. So they're working in conjunction with each other, mm. and do it, therefore, each is doing the work of the Father on his behalf. And I thought that was an interesting concept. So go check out your box of nitrate gloves and <laughs> see what you can learn. Well, I'll be at home tonight with gloves on. <laughs> God is so cool. <laughs> One of the common analogies that the church uses is that of a, of a family. Okay, because we have the image of the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. But that God himself is a relational being. God himself is a relationship. So God is a, a lover, the beloved, and the love in between them. God, if the Father is the lover, God the Son is the beloved. And the love in between them is so strong it manifests in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so just like a husband and wife come together, the husband is the lover, the, the wife is the beloved. They give themselves in love to one another. That love is so strong that nine months later, you name it, it's a new being. It's just kind of the same creative energy of love that exists within the Trinity, except it's they're all eternal. It's not like the Holy Spirit sprang out later. They've all always coexisted. But in order for love to really exist, that's what you need. You need those three things. For there to be real love, you need the lover, the beloved, and the love in between them. If any one of those things is absent, it's not real love. And because it says in 1 John 4, chapter 8, or 1 John 4, verse 8, um, if you do not know love, you do not know God, for God is love. We can look at God in that way, through that lens of love, that he is the lover, the beloved, and the love in between them. And all of them coexist. You cannot have one without any of the others. Yes? Oh, I'm, I'm, i got to say this. I went to Catholic High School. Yes. I didn't get, get much more than Baltimore Catechism and Shamrock. Yes. <laughs> and, and I just kind of feel cheated that you weren't there. <laughs> Someone like you wasn't there in my high school because I would have been a completely different Catholic. Mm. I would have been functioning from a working understanding, okay, rather than, you know, rote memorization. Mm. You, know the, you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. So I just, you know, I guess that's an authentic compliment. Thank you. So but I hear that, and what I, what I immediately what I heard back is the first verse of this reading. I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. Like for those of us at times when we have this like, man, like I wish I had known this before. I wish I had known this or I wish I had this understanding of the Holy Spirit. Like maybe, maybe we wouldn't have been able to accept it. Maybe we wouldn't have been able to understand it. Because in everything there is timing. 
You know, God doesn't reveal himself in Genesis chapter 1. He doesn't say, I made you, man and woman, in my image and likeness. By the way, I'm Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am a trinity. Like, he doesn't say that. He reveals himself slowly over time, first as Father, then as Son, then as Spirit. And it's this invitation into deeper intimacy. I talked about this yesterday at the Pentecost event, for those of you who were there. This understanding of God the Father of, as God outside of us. And then when we reveal, when we reveal that God the Son... God the Son is beside us, but God the Holy Spirit is God within us. And there's this movement toward deeper intimacy, outside, beside, inside. But if God just shows up and tries to blow right into us, into our life, all of a sudden, that's going to be too much. We may not be able to bear it in that moment. And so I think that that first verse, I think, is very poignant. It's a very good thing to reflect upon, especially if you're someone who's been praying for something for a very long time or it feels like things in your life aren't changing, or you're asking God for something and it feels like you're not getting any answers, or there's just kind of this desolation or emptiness, or it's just taking too much time, or whatever it might be, I really encourage you to pray on that verse. I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. That there is always, God is always perfect in his timing. And the imperfect thing about that for us is that his timing is not our timing. We want it sooner, we want it now, we think we're ready. We have that all of growing up, you know. When we're young, we think we're invincible, we know it all, we're ready for all of these responsibilities. Like, sure, I can go out in the world and take care of myself. You know, like 13 years old, at least that's what I thought. You know, all the times I tried to run away from home and I got a block past my house and just hid behind a tree, you know, until my dad came and found me, you know, because I thought I was ready, you know. But then when you're faced with the reality, you recognize, like, oh, I would not have been ready for this until this moment. You know, when I wanted it before, when I was hoping for that answer, I wouldn't have been ready for it. You know, and so retrospect can help that. Retrospect, having gratitude for where you are now and where the Lord has brought you now can help illuminate, like, wow, now I'm at a place where I can understand this. And the same is true for all of us in many different facets of our life. And that's the beauty of how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit always has perfect timing. Yeah? Um, so, you mentioned, like, neither uh, one can speak without the other. Mm -hmm. So I was curious like how God was able to speak in a way like with that before Jesus and Holy Spirit. So if none can speak without the other, yeah. how was God able to speak before we had been revealed the Son and the Holy Spirit? And so the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed. They're, they're, they're all three of them are eternal. They've always existed from the very beginning of time. You know, there, there is no beginning to God. The Father's always existed, the Son has always existed, the Spirit has always existed. So whether or not we were aware of it, they were always cooperating and revealing a collective truth, achieving a collective mission. We were just slowly brought into the loop over time, layer by layer, stage by stage. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they were always cooperating, we just weren't aware of that. Yes. Does this mean that before Christ was born a human, he manifested himself in either other ways before he was a human? Um, you could say that, yeah. Um, there are different personifications of God where God is, uh, is talked about in anthropomorphic um, descriptions. So in Genesis chapter 2, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But God, the Father, we, you know, we believe God himself and his essence is not corporeal. He doesn't have a body. 
And yet, he came in human form, and Jesus has a body. He has a human nature, he has a divine body. Uh, and so, I once asked this question uh, of a priest. It was like, you know, um, Jesus has, has two natures. He's a human nature and a divine nature. He he's, he's, has a body, and he's God. Does Jesus still have his body? And he said, yes. And I said, well, if, if God is never changing, if he's, you know, the unmoved mover, he never changes, then did he have his body before? And he said, well, in essence, everything that God created, including our bodies, already existed in himself in some way. So in essence, yes, he already had his human nature. It just hadn't manifested on earth yet. So in that sense, always, he's always existed. Um, but you do have these anthropomorphic qualities of God. We have one of those that we associate with the Holy Spirit. In Genesis, where Jacob, uh, there's a story in Jacob, uh, Genesis 32 to 38, somewhere in there. Uh, Jacob is sleeping by in Bethel. It becomes the place named Bethel. He's sleeping by a river, and I think he's escaping with his family from some kind of danger. And in the middle of the night, God comes to him and wrestles with him. And he believes that this is some kind of angel. And Jacob actually, like, pins God. Like, he, like, he is able to, like, wrestle with him. And so God changes his name to Israel, which means one who wrestles with or one who contends with God. He changes his name. And the only person that could change your name, your name was your essence. The only person that could change your essence was God. And so he reveals, basically, in, in so many words, that he has wrestled with a divine being. And so we, uh, many church theologians, uh, biblical scholars, refer to that instance of Jacob wrestling with the person of the Holy Spirit. That that's who that was when Jacob was wrestling. And so all of the, the persons of the Trinity have manifested in some way. You know, God is a pillar of fire and smoke. You know, maybe it was Jesus anthropomorphically walking around in the Garden of Eden, the Holy Spirit wrestling with Jacob, and all throughout the Old Testament until they're plainly revealed to us in the ways that we know them now. Nick? So going back to verse 12, does that really come through, is that really about our own resistance? Is verse 12 about our own resistance? I think in part, I think part of it is also that the apostles had not received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Corinthians, no one can say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And so if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we lack an ability to understand everything that God wants us to understand. So Jesus only was able to teach so much because the real power, the full blast of the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to the apostles. They wouldn't have been able to handle it. That's why constantly Jesus is like plainly saying, like, I'm going to suffer and die and rise on the third day. And it's like, like right over there. They have no clue what he's talking about. Like, he's constantly revealing things that are going to happen, and they, do, they misunderstand him because they don't get it. They're expecting something different. So part of it might be resistance, that we, we have a tendency towards sin. We have a tendency to think of our own plans, think of things going our own way. You know, think of when Peter was like, you know, Noah, this isn't going to happen to you, Lord. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You know, because you're thinking not as, as God does, but as human beings do. Uh, but part of it is because we they lacked the Holy Spirit. And if we lack the Holy Spirit, if we don't have the Holy Spirit by virtue of our baptism or our confirmation, we lack the ability to fully understand God to our best possibility. Yes? What are the other scriptural passages that are going to uh, be cited this Sunday that that reinforce this or set this up? Um, so we'll be in Romans 5. Um, that talks about more about justification and faith. Um, 
And kind of, there's mention, I think, of all the persons of the Trinity, um, but it's more about like kind of the sequence of events that like uh, we have peace through Jesus, uh, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, and all of that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of almost about their cooperation. Um, the first reading is from Proverbs chapter 8, um, verse 22, and that's talking about like God from the beginning, like from the very beginning, um, in the beginning of his works, it says the forerunner of his deeds of long ago from old I was formed. So it kind of talks about how God has always existed before creation. So this eternal nature of God. And then the Psalm, I don't know if the Psalm says anything particularly, um, Trinitarian, it's from Psalm 8. Uh, when I see your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you set in place, a lot of that language is similar to the first reading, that you know God has always existed. And then we learn from the second reading, kind of cooperation between the three persons, same thing in the gospel, that there is this kind of Trinitarian understanding and relationship uh, in how we look at God, who's always existed. But this, I would say, this is probably the most explicit and how the natures or the three persons of the Holy, three persons of the Trinity interact and cooperate. Yeah, great question. Anything else? All right, let's dive in line by line from anything we haven't yet kind of talked about. Um, verse twelve, uh, as I mentioned, I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. I think this points to the fact not only that um, sometimes we're not ready to hear what God has for us, but also that the Holy Spirit completes what Jesus came to do. The Holy Spirit completes what Jesus came to do. So Jesus came and he had this ministry. We have all these teachings of Jesus. We look at his ministry, we read the Gospels. But as I said before, we cannot fully understand it or comprehend it if we do not have the Holy Spirit. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to continuously reveal to that to us in new ways. Okay, As I said before, what Jesus came and taught, that stands. It's unchanging. That's like our dogma, our doctrine. But what the Holy Spirit does is reveals to us a deeper way to understand that as time goes on. This is why the, Holy, the, the church has existed for nearly 2,000 years. When you think about it, no other human man-made institution has existed that long that I'm aware of in the history of the earth. You know, if you're aware of one, tell me, because I, there's no, no empire, nothing. Because they're solely man-made, and they fall apart because we're imperfect. And so just by virtue of the fact that the church still exists is evidence of the, the Holy Spirit, because they, how could it have happened any other way? You know, it wasn't like the church had any power or political authority for the first 300 years of its existence. It was heavily persecuted. People were trying to destroy it, hunt it down. You know, not only that, the devil is constantly trying to destroy, pick apart, and tear apart the church. And yet, it, it persists. It persists. And so part of that, this verse, is kind of evidence of why we need the church. You know, why can't I just, like, kind of believe in Jesus? Why can't I pick up my Bible, read what it says, and just believe it? Well, it's because we don't have the ability to fully understand or comprehend what we're being revealed. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. We need discernment. And the Holy Spirit guides the church, ensures the church will never commit error in matters of faith or morals. That's part of what's called the infallibility of the church. So we believe in you know, papal infallibility, but we also believe in the infallibility of the church and the bishops, that the bishops 
The church and the Pope will never authoritatively declare anything that will bind us to error or sin. And we believe that that comes from the fact, not that they're perfect, that there's anything special about them. It comes from the fact that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church. The Holy Spirit is guiding the church. So I guess all of that to say, this, this verse in particular, this passage, is really good evidence for us to recognize that we need the church. We need someone to guide us. We need the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. It's the same reason like we need community and why we constantly you know, uh, find new ways of doing that. We're, we seek relationship with one another because we know inherently we are not meant to be alone. Same thing is true in our spiritual life. We need the church. Verse 13, but when he comes, now there's a little point here, there's kind of this, I don't know what you would call it, there's a movement in the church for people to call the Holy Spirit she. And that's fine, you know, if you want to be inclusive and things like that, but it's not biblical. It's not biblical. So I have no problem with the Holy Spirit being she, if Jesus called the Holy Spirit she, but he didn't. We call the church she. The church is she. And it helps establish a very particular relationship, this spousal relationship between the church and God. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, you have, the, you have people who disobey the law being accused of adultery. You know, they're, they're called adulterers. What they're really doing is they're committing the sin of idolatry. They're turning away from worship of God and essentially cheating on him with some pagan, non-real God. And it's because we, we are meant to have this covenantal relationship with God. God commits himself to us. We commit ourselves back to him. And so we that's why we have this kind of um, ontology of seeing God as father, as he, as husband, as bridegroom, and the church, us, as she, bride, spouse, to the bridegroom. Because it has this really beautiful marital relationship, and we understand what that is to give to one another. So it's not that we're trying to commandeer the nature of God and make God masculine, you know, because there's a lot of maternal images of God in the Old Testament, you know, of God, um, you know, being personified as a mother who breastfeeds her children. So, so God cares for Israel. You read that in Isaiah. But Jesus reveals to us that God is Father. He reveals himself as Son, reveals, reveals the Spirit as He. So if you ever hear that, it's kind of like a progressive thing that some people do in the church. It's, it's, there's nothing necessarily like evil about that, you know, but it's not biblical. So if you have questions about it, you hear that, like, oh, where does that come from? It kind of comes from this idea that, like, oh, well, we want to get away from this kind of patriarchal image of the church. That's a misunderstanding of the image of the church entirely, because the church totally glorifies the feminine genius. I mean, just read the documents of Pope John Paul II on the feminine genius and, like, the beauty of Mary and our female tradition of so many wonderful female saints and the church as mother church as she. It's just a really beautiful relationship that's so complementary and beautiful. And so when you hear that, that I think in some ways can detract from the beauty of that kind of covenantal relationship that God has revealed, that Jesus has revealed. Um, so when he comes, the spirit of truth. Truth is a huge theme in the Gospel of John. In fact, we see this all the way in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And there's an instance in the Gospels in John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He reveals himself as a manifestation of truth. Okay, that God, in fact, we see this in, in I think, all the persons of the Trinity. I think it's Psalm 143. 
Verse 10, they're talking to God the Father. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your kind spirit guide me on ground that is level. That God's spirit is a source of truth. Before they even knew there was a Holy Spirit, they see God the Father as a source of truth. Jesus is revealed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth in this gospel passage. Going back to this idea that they all always are cooperating. They have the same mission to reveal the truth. And I don't know about you, but when I was reading this three times, that word truth was the word that kept coming up, kept coming up. Truth, truth, truth. Because as I said, we live in a world, you could call today's culture a post-truth culture. You know, to say like, to go up to someone and say like, this is true and this is not, or this is right and this is wrong, is you're just inviting, you know, being called a bigot, you're inviting an argument, you're inviting a debate, because everyone has this idea that like to tolerate everyone's opinion is the most loving thing that you can do. And we want to love other people, but if people are, if someone who I really love is going down a path that's destroying them, or that is wrong, or that's objectively evil, immoral, sinful, hurtful to them, I'm going to tell them that that is wrong because I love them. You know, tolerance is, is more of a, about a love of self. I'm too uncomfortable to tell you what I really think, so I'm going to love myself into a comfortable place and just say, everyone's fine. What everyone believes is true, and it's all okay. And that's not true. You know, two plus two will always equal four. And just say, yeah, but to me it's five. I'm like, you're an idiot. You don't know math. Like, no, it's a, I'm sorry. But like, that's just... I and mean, we don't want to say that to people, but like that's the reality of it. But these 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 different ways that this can come up can become very heated and blurred because they have to do with I don't know identities people have or ways that people live, and it can be very personal and sensitive for people. We have to be very cautious of that, but we also have to be willing to speak into those people's lives, the willingness to tell them what is true, what they were made for, what is good. You know, that God created them in His image and likeness. That we don't have this full autonomy over what we can do in our bodies. and Like, whatever I want, whatever's true for me is, is right and good. No. There are things that destroy. There are things that are wrong. There are things that are evil. And to really love people is to tell them that. So that they don't fall into that pit of destruction or fall down that path that's just going to destroy them. And I think we live in a world where we see, you know, I, I think about the, the word is from, from John 8. Jesus says, um, if you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Probably heard that before in a movie or something, right? The truth will set you free. That is what loving someone into the truth is inviting them into. It's freedom. It's not oppression. It's not rules. It's not saying you're condemned, you're judged, you're wrong. It's inviting them into a life that is free. It's inviting us into a life that is free. And I don't know about you, but when I look around at the world today, I see people enslaving themselves to ideologies, enslaving themselves to ways of life that are not making them happy. And instead of admitting that, oh, I was wrong, or I made a mistake, or maybe this isn't right, or maybe this isn't good for me, they get into a, a course of denial and just keep diving further and further into this behavior, this lifestyle, this addiction, this choice, whatever it is, and it just slowly destroys them. And I think for us as believers, we first really have to recognize, like, God is inviting us into freedom. Inviting us into freedom. Do we know the truth that's being revealed to us? Are we, do we really feel free? Or do we feel shackled by different habits, beliefs, sins, whatever it might be? And when we can take hold of that truth, take hold of that freedom, are we giving that freely to other people? 
Are we allowing the spirit of truth to flow out of us to help other people know whatever darkness you're facing, whatever ways you feel shackled and, and enslaved by whatever the fad is or the trend is of today's culture, you don't have to live this way anymore. This isn't what your life has to look like. Maybe God is something more for you. That word just kept blowing up for me, truth. That word truth in Greek is aletheia. If you've ever met someone in aletheia, it was a very popular name for, I mean, I, I only meet like grandmas who have that name now, aletheia. So it was a, pro, pro, a very popular name decades ago. Um, but it means, it doesn't mean necessarily just like not false. What aletheia means is like not hidden or not concealed. So this kind of points to this next phrase, he will guide you to all truth, he will not, um, and then skipping forward, will declare to you things that are coming or things that are unknown. I think a lot of people in today's world are, uh, struggle with anxiety because of the unknown or things outside of our control, right? And something that is characteristic of people who live in the spirit is that they are very attuned to the present moment and they are free of that anxiety because they know that wherever God leads, Wherever the Holy Spirit leads, it's going to be good. Because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way. He's not a truth. He's not a lifestyle. He is the source, the fulfillment, everything we're looking for. And if we can trust that, if we know the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, if we can trust that the Holy Spirit is leading us where we need to be, whether we have a clear view of that path or not, that anxiety can begin to drip away. I have to think about this sometimes a lot. I have to think about the fact that having a young family with, with you know young kids and wanting to be around, I have to think about the fact that, like, Lord, if I die young and I leave my kids behind and my wife behind, I know that you can use even something that tragic for your greater glory. It's not what you would want. It's not plan A. Plan A was the Garden of Eden. You wanted wholeness. You wanted life. You wanted family. But I know that you will take care of that. And I have to remind myself of those things constantly because I can get caught up in the anxiety. What if something happens to me? What if this goes wrong? What if my, you know, this is unspoken. My, my wife, my children don't know this or that. But when I can really rest in the spirit and say, God, I know that you are real and I know, I know that you are in control. That begins to slip away. That is the freedom that truth can provide us. A truth is not just knowing the right answer, in this sense. It's not just having like, okay, I get, I get what the Catholic Church believes, and I can tell someone it. Like, that's great, you know. Here's your summa cum laude degree. Like, you know, that's good for you, you know. But there's nothing necessarily freeing about that. This truth is an invitation into a life of the Spirit. Knowing that the Spirit's in charge, the Spirit's behind the wheel, and I'm just a passenger. And I may not know where we're going, but I know that the destination will be good. And I have to resist the urge to grab the wheel and be in control or feel like, God, this is too much for us. I'm just going to open the door, tuck and roll, and get out of here and find my own car and figure this out on my own. Sort of some of our common responses, right? Continuing on, he will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus says this in multiple places that I read in John 15, John 17. says, I only spoke what the Father wanted. And then we talked about how he will declare to you that word declare, having to do with victory, having to do with prophecy and apocalyptic literature, all of the difficult persecutions that might come, all of the darkness that we might face. 
that the Holy Spirit will be victorious, will lead us to what is good. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. There's this co-ownership, triune relationship where everything is peaceable, united, no, there's no division. For this reason I told you that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. God, Jesus here, again, promising that after he leaves, there will still be this constant outpouring of the God, of God the Father cooperating with the Son and with the Holy Spirit, constantly revealing to us what is true. And so as we hear these readings proclaimed this upcoming Sunday, I think it can, it can be fascinating and fun to kind of get lost in like Trinitarian theology and seek to understand that. But I think taking a step back to really ask ourselves, how am I responding to the invitation to enter deeper into the inner life of God? Do I understand that God is always inviting, always revealing, always working toward my good? That he is here with me. He's not just outside of me or beside me, but inside of me, the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, guiding me to all truth. And then to ask the question, do I feel free? Do I feel free in my life? Or do I wake up feeling bound by the routine, a dead-end job, a lost passion, you know, um, feeling miserable about this or that, not feeling like I can communicate or share or, you know, do the things that I'm really enjoying or passionate about? Like, what are the ways that you're feeling held back from a life that you want, a life in the spirit, because of whatever else is going on? I think those are the real questions to really reflect on this weekend as we hear these readings proclaimed, because God, Father, Son, and Spirit desires to be in relationship with you in a way that sets you free and leads you to a deeper understanding of the truth, deeper understanding of the freedom you've been created for. So let's pray that we can receive that this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for the freedom you offer us that you do not lie to us, that you tell us the truth like it is. You do not shy away from the things that we need to hear because loving us is worth it. You love us so much that you will tell us what we need to hear. You will call us to greater things. You will call us to turn away from sin and live a life of freedom, live a life of the Spirit. So we pray, God, the ways that maybe we've been running away from that, the ways that we've become complacent in our faith, tired, bored, routine, the ways that we may have lost trust or faith in you, to be reminded this week that you are always on time. You are always at work for our good. So help us to know that and rely on that and experience that deep freedom you offer, to not be people of anxiety or depression, worrying about the future or the past, but to be people of joy and peace who live in the present moment, animated by your Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with you as Father and with Jesus as Son. Pray all of these things in your most precious name. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.